Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. The new head of the army has fired an opening salvo, telling the service it must prepare to fight in Europe and defeat Russia in battle. It came in a letter to servicemen and women, but who else is reading it? I know that it's been widely reported in the Baltic states, and uh, I suspect it will be in every defence ministry in NATO and certainly in, in the Kremlin. So I think from that point of view, it, it, it's helpful. We'll assess the impact of General Sanders' letter and hear what the Defence Secretary thinks of it. British troops had to fight for their lives in Europe nearly 30 years ago, despite being on a peacekeeping mission. We'll look at the lasting effects. When we compared Gulf One, Granby, and the height of Op Grapple, Bosnia, it came over that Bosnia was a lot worse, a lot more scary, a lot more difficult, and created a lot more psychiatric problems than Gulf One did. And has North Korea taken advantage of the world's focus on Ukraine to advance its nuclear weapons program? The potential that North Korea could test a smaller tactical nuclear warhead, I think, would make the North Korean nuclear threat exponentially more problematic. For his first week in the job, the new head of the army has put down a couple of strong markers and made some waves. In a letter to all those he leads, General Sir Patrick Sanders wrote that they must prepare to fight in Europe once again and be capable of defeating Russia in battle. His letter also revealed that he's cancelled three Paris deployment to Kosovo and Bosnia in September because of a graphic video apparently filmed at their barracks in Colchester. The chief of the general staff wrote that the behaviour was corrosive and that he had temporarily lost trust in the battalion. So what does all this tell us about how General Sanders will lead the army? A question I put to former Deputy Chief of Defence Staff, retired Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle. I know CGS extremely well. He was my uh, brigade major when I was a brigade commander, and uh, he's a very fine soldier, a very fine commander. I think he's just been very clear that he is expecting every soldier under his command, that he absolutely wants them to be clear of what our core business is and what his focus will be and underpinning the core business of defending the nation, fighting the nation's wars, will be an adherence to very high personal and professional standards. General Sanders' letter implicitly says we're not currently ready to fight in Europe. If you take at face value that the intended audience was the army rather than the politicians, what does he want to say to his officers and soldiers to, so that they can be ready for a possible fight with Russia? Well, of course, it's a possible fight with Russia alongside allies. Uh, and uh, he needs to uh, just say to people, start getting back to basics, start concentrating on uh, all the low-level skills, uh, then the collective skills that bring armour, infantry, artillery, logistics, etc. together, uh, then start thinking about command and control, start thinking about tactics, start thinking about encouraging the warfighting ethos that's so important to success on the battlefield. Um, and as I said, CGS is, um, with his background and his uh, his. Uh, uh, credibility is, is just the man to take that message to the army. Being ready to fight in Europe, to fight against Russia, requires us to understand what form that might take. What kind of fight do we need to be ready for, do you think? Well, I think Ukraine has been a surprise uh, in how old-fashioned some of it has looked. This is not a revolution in military affairs. Uh, what it has reminded us, of course, is, uh, in terms of the Russians, the failure to get your logistics right. Uh, the failure of standards of behaviour among soldiers, the failures of 
low-level leadership, the failures to coordinate all arms uh, groupings and manoeuvre. They're all things that a top-rate professional army are on top of. And we just, again, need to remind ourselves that the break we've had to an extent, peacekeeping operations, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, all of which we do extremely well, uh, need to be, to an extent, reprioritized against the prospect of a more old-fashioned conventional war with all the additions of cyber, robotics, of AI, of communications. But old-fashioned basics are, I think, as much at the heart of what CGS will be demanding as the integration of new capabilities. And yet the UK and NATO's response to Ukraine seems to be based on the idea that if we were to fight Russia directly, it would be inevitably leading to nuclear war. Is it realistic to think we could be involved in a conventional war in Europe anytime soon? Well, we hope not. But so much of the concept of deterrence is based on looking credible in defence. Uh, and again, I think the more credible the British Army looks, the more credible we look alongside all other NATO allies, the more we train, the more we uh, have a visible presence, hopefully the more we contribute to deterrence, which ultimately is what NATO has so successfully done since its inception, is to avoid conventional war in Europe by making it both unnecessary and the opposition unwilling to undertake it. This letter was an internal letter sent to army personnel. Um, how do you think the CGS will feel about it leaking out and perhaps the fact that it might actually, that message, get to Russia? Well, I, I suspect the Russians will have it. I, in an earlier conversation today, I know that it's been widely reported in the Baltic states. And uh, I suspect it will be in every defence ministry uh, in, in NATO and certainly in, in the Kremlin. So I think from that point of view, it, it, it's helpful. I'm sure it was cleared with the Secretary of State. I'm sure it reflects the government's uh, determination to be very active in uh, deterring the Russians, contributing to NATO's credibility, uh, and helping the Ukrainians in the current fight. Retired Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle, Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark is with me once again. Michael, we'll talk about Ukraine and the risk of war in Europe more in a moment. But before that, do you think this was also an opening shot from General Sanders to Westminster and Whitehall? And if so, has it hit its mark? Yes, I'm sure it was. I mean, as uh, Simon Mayle said, it will have been cleared with the Defence Secretary. Um, whether it was cleared with Downing Street or, or not, I don't know. But I think the letter was very important because, um, again, as Simon said, it, 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 there's one assumption that we've always made explicitly is that the British Army or British forces will not fight alone if they fight in Europe. But there's a second assumption which is never, ever spelt out publicly, which is that though that is true, we prepare to fight in Europe. We don't expect to do it anytime soon. And that mm. assumption has run through British defence thinking for about 20 odd years now. And what this letter says is, is that assumption has got to go. We may find ourselves doing this um, before too long. And the point is the idea that we, we know we've got to go to Europe um, to fight at some point, but not soon, mm. meant that our sustainability was terrible. Uh, I mean, we kept uh, stocks of ammunition for about 30 days. And mm. as the war in Ukraine has reminded us, we shouldn't have needed reminding. We've got forces that are there on paper, but cannot be sustained. Everybody knows that. Everybody knew it. But nobody officially would say it. And Patrick Sanders' letter is about as close as I've seen to somebody saying, we've got to get serious about this. Well, this is what Defence Secretary Ben Wallace had to say to BFBS SITREP about General Sanders' warning. I think it's always important that our troops, our ground forces, are modernised and ready 
to fight wherever the, our adversary presents uh, a threat to us. And, and of course, what has been the case is over the last few years, the Navy and the Air Force have been in a different investment cycle, and the Army has been probably about 10 years behind even its peer group. And that's why actually last year we committed to uh, nearly £40 billion of investment into their capability over the next 10 years. Uh, and that will see us configure uh, and up equip to make sure we can face whatever the adversary is. But I think what CGS was also saying is, you know, the threat is closer than we think. You know, this is no longer a Middle East or a, or a far away a threat. This is a war in Europe, and therefore we must be pre prepared to defend NATO uh, in a way that we've never had to against the threat, certainly not since the Cold War. The simple reality is uh, Russia is back. Russia is more angry, more aggressive, and willing to break all international norms. Uh, and that means we have to be prepared to defend our values and defend our territories. Michael Clark, the Defence Secretary talking about the need to defend our territories, brings us back to that concern of people, of possible contagion from Ukraine. Moscow has now threatened Lithuania with serious consequences after the transport of certain goods across Lithuania to Kaliningrad was stopped. Lithuania says this is about implementing EU sanctions. Lithuania, of course, is also a NATO member state. How big do you think the risk is of Lithuania and therefore the UK and rest of NATO getting dragged into this? Yes, well, it already is, um, in a sense, dragged into it because what Lithuania was doing was implementing EU sanctions, which affects only about 1% of the goods which go backwards and forwards uh, across Lithuania's territory to Belarus and then to Russia. And it doesn't affect human traffic. Um, uh, just passenger traffic is normal. And, of course, Kaliningrad can always be supplied by sea through the Baltics. So it's it's not much of a... It's, not, it's certainly not a blockade, but it's an implementation of sanctions. But the Russians have chosen to make this into an issue because, as I keep saying, escalation is built into this crisis. I mean, I think there'll be some military manoeuvres, there'll be some shadow boxing. They, they've got Iskander missiles in Kaliningrad, which, and we believe they're nu nuclear capable, and we all believe they've got a stockpile of nuclear warheads there as well, though they've never admitted it. So maybe they would admit that fact and go in for some nuclear drills. But the fact is they don't have, you know, any troops around the Baltics at the moment because they're all in Ukraine. So I suspect we'll see some exercise and some saber rattling, but it's hard to imagine what tangibly the Russians can do. Well, let's look at the situation on the ground in Ukraine. Reports again in the last few days that Russia is close to taking Severodonetsk. This is a bit like what we had with Mariupol, which held out for weeks. Do you think Severodonetsk is about to fall? Not absolutely immediately, but clearly the, the Russians are now, they've got as far as the river, um, Severodonetsk, it's based on one side of the Seversky-Donetsk River, and on the other side is Lishishansk, another city on the higher ground to the west. And so the Russians have reached the river in the north, and south of the city centre, they're close to the airport, and they will reach the river. You know, that pocket is closing, but we expected it to close about three weeks ago. And the Ukrainians went back over the river to defend it afresh to slow the Russians down. More worrying for Ukraine's point of view is that the Russians do seem to have crossed the Seversky Donetsk River further south. It looks as if the Russians are now coming towards Lishishansk from the south. And so they might be capable, if they can move a bit faster, of enveloping Ukrainian forces. At some point in the next week or two weeks, the Ukrainians will, will have to decide whether to withdraw out of the pocket before it closes and move back westwards to Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, which is the, the next big strategic target. And on the subject of Severodonetsk itself, would that be a turning point in the war if they did take it? 
only symbolically, Severodonetsk is not uh, a strategically so important uh, place, but it represents the last big city in Luhansk. And if the Russians want the Donbass, then they have to take Luhansk. They still don't have Donetsk. They have about half of it. But until they take Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, these two mm. other cities, particularly Kramatorsk, which is the, um, the, the rail and road hub for Donetsk, until they take those two cities, they can't claim to have liberated or have conquered the Donbass. There's an interesting Twitter thread from Dr. Mike Martin, a visiting fellow in war studies at King's College London. He argues that we should be more focused on Kherson in the south than the Donbass region because of its strategic position on the Dnipro River that effectively cuts Ukraine in half and also because it provides a gateway to Russia-held Crimea. Is he right? Is Kherson where we should really be watching? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, I've been keeping an eye on Kherson um, for the last two or three weeks. The Ukrainians launched quite a big counteroffensive there over two weeks ago. They crossed the uh, Inulitz River, which may, which puts them on the the, the the east side of the river. Uh, they've attacked in the north um, to get north of the of Kherson, and they're now attacking Kherson itself. Last week, they were only about uh, twenty kilometres from the city centre, and only ten kilometres from the airport in Kherson. Now, it, you know, ten and twenty kilometres in fighting terms is still quite a long way. You don't just sort of drive down the road. But the fact is that the Ukrainians have recovered more territory around this city than they've lost in the Donbass. But the Russians are mounting a bit of a counterattack. Um, the you know the, the Ukrainians are not having it all their own way. But undoubtedly, while the Russians have, have thinned out their forces in the southwest in order to put everything into the Donbass, the Ukrainians are taking advantage. And believe me, the Ukrainians would certainly trade Severodonetsk for liberating Kherson. If the Ukrainians were to liberate it, that would be a huge victory for them and an enormous embarrassment to the Russians. And let's just talk briefly about the UK defence intelligence assessment on Ukraine's rebel forces in the Donbass. Russian-backed Ukrainians who have been fighting their own government since 2014. Uh, a UK assessment says they've now lost half their troops since the invasion. How much difference does that make? Yeah, I think it might make quite a difference. <clears throat> and it's clear that the the Russians are trying to make sure that the people in the front line are not, if you like, you know, Muscovite Russians, Petersburg Russians. And so we know that the vast majority of the casualties um, conform to this pattern, that most of them are from the eastern republics of Russia. There's a lot of Chechens involved, a lot of those from Dagestan involved, and people from these breakaway republics of Luhansk and Donetsk. And there's a lot of reporting that uh, recruitment in those two breakaway republics has been more or less for forced. People are being picked up almost off the streets and put into the army, whether they want to or not. I mean, they are, you know, real cannon fodder. And so, you know, the Russians are just feeding in inexperienced, demotivated troops to the front line, which is why they rely so much on their artillery, because their tactics are still to completely flatten a target with artillery and then send in, you know, unmotivated, untrained troops to take, take command of the rubble. Any reasonably well-equipped and well-motivated soldiers who fight back um, will find that they've got pretty easy targets. That's what's been happening. Michael, stay with us. Now, let's return to the idea of British forces on active duty in Europe. 30 years ago, the UK did deploy troops into a war in Eastern Europe, though not in a combat role. Along with allies, they were sent to Bosnia as United Nations peacekeepers. Don't be fooled by that title, though. At times, they had to fight for their lives as well as the lives of others. And it's had a lasting impact. The Dutch Prime Minister has just apologised to 850 of his countries 
country's veterans who were deployed to guard the UN safe zone in Srebrenica in 1995. They were overwhelmed by Bosnian Serb forces who then murdered 8,000 Bosnian Muslim men and boys. Srebrenica is a black page in history for us, so we don't mention it anywhere. We don't talk about it. We don't speak about it. Remco de Bruyne was one of those Dutch peacekeepers. At the time, many blamed them for failing to stop the genocide. But Prime Minister Mark Rutte now says they were set an impossible task with inadequate equipment and support. Last year, a report recommended better care for the Dutch veterans who'd been given that impossible mission. I dreamt about it. Flashbacks of Srebrenica. Woke up three or four times a night. I've learned all the PTSD traps as I call them, the crowd. It reminds me of the of the outflow from Srebrenica town. I cannot handle the smell of garbage very well. In, in my case, I saw too many things. British veterans of UN peacekeeping in Bosnia also still live with the memories of what they witnessed and the struggle to save lives. Tom Sables has been looking at the impact. Peacekeepers are embedded in hostile landscapes to help settle matters without violence. Situations like Cyprus haven't gone kinetic in years, but when violence does arrive, military observers become witnesses and may not have the tools to respond. Garajda in 1995. The breakup of Yugoslavia has drawn up new political borders, but fighting and tensions persist around Bosnia. The Bosnian Muslim community has gathered in one of several enclaves marked as UN safe zones, off-limits to Bosnian Serb aggressors. Colonel Richard Wesley commanded the peacekeeping force of Royal Welsh Fusiliers deployed there. It was under three metres of snow, temperatures down with the wind chill to about minus 25, and it was a dark, dark place. Grasta is completely dominated by bleak limestone mountains that get up to about 3,000 feet, and at the top of those mountains, were Serb soldiers surrounding the whole of the town. Unusually, we weren't given a mission. We had to create our own mission. Neither side could brandish weapons in a three-kilometre exclusion zone around Garajda. When Richard arrived, there was a month left on a ceasefire. There would be misunderstandings where UN troops were directly targeted by the Bosnian Serb army. There was a code word called Blue Sword for requesting United Nations air support. I called for it a number of times. I never once saw a UN aircraft. Um, on one particular occasion, having been pinned down for a number of hours, we were told it was not viable, and we waited till dark, we crawled out, and apparently the authority for that lay in New York in the UN headquarters. There was nobody in the office because it was a Friday evening. My request would be top of the in-tray on Monday morning. Members of the British SAS, who were specialists in calling for air support, had joined Richard's men. It was later revealed they were feeding back reports on the group's mental health as horrific violence plagued Garajda. Around me I'm seeing children, families, people being quite indiscriminately targeted. You can very easily develop a feeling of helplessness because you can't protect them. Uh, a certain amount of guilt. The term moral injury, the injury is not physical and it's not the classic PTSD, but it's about the fact that you are unable to operate in a way that you feel that you should have done. And you feel now guilty and you feel ashamed of it. A leading voice in military mental health, Professor Sir Simon Wesley studies the psychological scars of peacekeeping. I think what's surprising about the mental health impact 
of peacekeeping compared to combat missions is how similar they are. It's actually more shame and guilt and fear that generates long-term complications. When we compared the experiences between Gulf One, Granby, and, and the height of Op Grapple, Bosnia, it came over that Bosnia was a lot worse, a lot more scary, a lot more difficult, and created a lot more psychiatric problems than Gulf One did. And yet one was a classic war fighting, the other was peacekeeping. Well, it wasn't really. Interestingly, an emotional overlap exists between peacekeeping complications and friendly fire cases. You can feel anger towards the UN, who gave you rules of deployment that left you completely exposed and unable to act to prevent an atrocity, or against your own side in a combat situation who accidentally bombed you. The anger against who did this to me, who should not have done, who's supposed to be on my side, is intense. One of the activities that the Bosnian Serb Army were undertaking at that time was shooting children who were coming out of school. We would put vehicles then to shield the children. Richard put his peacekeepers in the line of fire, not just to protect the children, but to fire back under strict rules of engagement, which meant he could only react when fired upon. It meant that the bullets were going in quite pro close proximity to us, which meant that we were, we were able to open fire. Bosnian Serbs bombarded Garajda and took UN hostages. But 45 British soldiers stopped 3,000 from entering the town while Muslim forces rallied. We killed a lot of them, which you know, was not our mission really, but we were forced into that situation. And we had no problems with rules engagement at that stage because it was an all-out attack on us. Richard's men saved 10,000 lives. His bravery was recognised, but the lethal action he felt forced to take shows how peacekeeping missions can be anything but peaceful. Tom Sable's reporting and a spokesman for UN Peacekeeping told BFPS SITREP that the UN continues to learn from its failures in Srebrenica and that it takes its duty of care to personnel very seriously. The UN, they say, is currently developing an overall mental health strategy for uniformed personnel in the UN, including a comprehensive support structure for prevention, detection, treatment and post-deployment care. And if you want to watch more on this, Tom has a documentary just released on the Forces News YouTube channel. News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitrep. Now, with everything that's been going on in Ukraine, we have perhaps slightly had our eye off the ball as far as the rest of the world is concerned. But we could be about to get a stark reminder that Russia is not the only significant threat to our interests and security. North Korea has already broken its own record for missile tests this year, with six months still to go. And now it looks like North Korea might also be about to carry out its first nuclear weapon test for five years. Satellite images show fresh activity at its nuclear test site, and the US has warned of a swift and forceful response if there is a test. So how worried should we be? Marcus Galakas is the former North Korea National Intelligence Officer for the US National Intelligence Council. He's now non-resident senior fellow with the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security in Washington, DC. The potential that North Korea could test a smaller, lighter, what they call a tactical nuclear warhead, I think would make the North Korean uh, nuclear threat exponentially more problematic. So there, there's a technical aspect, and there's also the political aspect. A seventh nuclear test would mark another step toward putting North Korea in the position of being a de facto nuclear armed state for the foreseeable future. Pakistan has only conducted six nuclear tests. Pakistan has become essentially accepted as a nuclear armed state. I, I think there's a technical and a political aspect that would make this test very worrying. And how close is North Korea to having a viable nuclear weapon? 
My assessment is that North Korea already has viable nuclear weapons. Uh, when you look at their record of testing uh, both of warheads and of uh, delivery systems, uh, if you look at the open source data available, you have to conclude there's a very high uh, probability that they already have viable nuclear warheads. And what do you think they want to do with them? So I think North Korea has nuclear weapons for two purposes. The first, of course, is deterrence, to prevent uh, threats from the regime uh, from getting to the point where they could actually pose a serious risk of deposing uh, and bringing down the, the Kim system. But uh, I think there's another aspect, too, and that is uh, a, a secondary purpose to be able to coerce uh, and threaten uh, and to provide a backstop for uh, aggression against uh, particularly South Korea. And what do we know about the means to deliver a nuclear strike, the missiles? How well advanced is the North Korean missile program now? Uh, North Korea's uh, missile program continues to uh, advance rapidly. There's the, the older track of liquid fuel, liquid propellant systems, uh, and that's where uh, their, their capabilities uh, have been demonstrated in the, up to the uh, ICBM level to reach uh, into space or even to the continental United States with their reentry vehicle. But uh, also North Korea has been making advancements in the uh, solid propellant missiles, increasing accuracy, reliability, and then those solid fuel missiles are much more suited to battlefield use because they can uh, be prepared for firing very quickly and very quickly move from place to place and survive uh, under attack. With the missile technology that we know they have at the moment, which countries are at greatest risk? The country that's at the greatest risk from North Korea's current missile capabilities is, of course, South Korea, the Republic of Korea, uh, both because of the ranges of those weapons and, and North Korea's posture towards South Korea being very aggressive and coercive. But in practical terms, North Korea's uh, missiles could all also reach China and Russia as well. Uh, and I think Moscow and Beijing would, would do well to keep that in mind. There's still a good number of North Korean missiles that could reach out to Japan, even some missiles that could reach to Guam and Alaska. And then, of course, the intercontinental ballistic missiles um, that could reach to the United States, to Australia and to many other points on the globe. You mentioned the United States. How much of a concern should this be to the UK? I think North Korea's advancement should be of a great concern to the UK and much more concern, I would argue, than, than they are now. Uh, certainly, if there was a renewed military conflict uh, on the Korean peninsula, uh, it would pose a very high risk of nuclear use. But also the UK, uh, I think it's important to note, has uh, a commitment through the United Nations Command to the defense of the Republic of Korea. Uh, so it's my expectation that if there were renewed uh, hostilities, uh, the UK would be in a position where it would be expected uh, to deploy forces and directly contribute uh, to, to the defense against a, a North Korean attack. So I think the, uh, the UK has both reasons in terms of the global uh, concerns, uh, but also a very practical concern of, uh, of being drawn into the conflict if North Korea attacks South Korea. Former US National Intelligence Officer on North Korea, Marcus Galaskas. Professor Michael Clark, uh, Marcus says South Korea is at the biggest threat from North Korean missiles. If you look at a map, though, a nuclear strike would look like madness. It would be only 250 miles or so maximum from North Korea itself. Uh, yes, it would if you were thinking about uh, big systems. But, I mean, what we're thinking about now is if the North Koreans are testing a seventh, going for a seventh nuclear test and it's for a tactical nuclear warhead, um, as Marcus was saying, I mean, that is a more viable threat to uh, South Korea because tactical nuclear warheads might be quite small. I mean, they can be down to, you know, one or two kilotons uh, as opposed to, you know, five or ten kilotons. That would still make them smaller than Hiroshima. Um, and most warheads are up at the 100 to 200, 300 kiloton range. So technically, 
um, it would a, a, a theater nuclear weapon, a tactical nuclear weapon in North Korea's hands would be a bigger threat to South Korea. Um, on the other hand, that would still represent the crossing of an enormous threshold. Um, and, you know, we're back to the old problem of would the North Koreans really do it? And the more immediate worry then is that the tensions are rising around the Korean peninsula. What do you think will happen if there is a seventh nuclear test in the north? Well, whatever the Americans say, that there'd be a, a vigorous response. I think that vigorous response would be just more of the same, more sanctions, more condemnation and so on. I mean, the, the, the bottom line of all of this is that, you know, we can talk about nuclear politics and indeed the, you know, the North Korean, the Hwasang-14 missile, the biggest missile that Marcus was, was referring to, covers half the United States in its, in its range, but it covers all of the United Kingdom. If you look at it on a globe as opposed to a map, you'll see that we've been in the we have been in range of the Hwasang-14 for a long, long time. So um, there's hmm. a sort of theology about all of this, and we can frighten ourselves with it. But what it comes down to, as Ukraine teaches us, it comes down to some very traditional heavy metal. And the fact is, the North Koreans for many years have had 15,000 artillery pieces pointed at Seoul, which is only 35 miles over the border. And that's the real threat to South Korea. And always we, we've got to remember in these, uh, as it were, very elevated theological discussions about nuclear weapons, we're in a world in which some of the heavy metal and the more traditional military um, dynamics apply just as much. Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and you can catch up with past programmes on the website bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Jabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>